Hello and welcome to the Health Advocate Podcast Episode 2. My name is Dr Rebecca Haddock and I am the Manager of the Deeble Institute for Health Policy Research here at the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Deeble Institute, we are the research arm of AAHA and our mission is to help ensure that evidence is a cornerstone for health policy development in Australia. We do this in a number of ways, one of which is forming practical connections between researchers, policymakers, and practitioners, and also by creating opportunities for our university partners to translate research into good health policy and practice. Today, I am speaking with Elizabeth McCourt. Libby is a PhD student and associate lecturer at the School of Pharmacy, Queensland University of Technology. Libby is also a practicing pharmacist and recipient of a 2018 Deeble Institute Summer Research Scholarship. Libby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Before we talk about your experience as a Deeble Scholar here at the AAHA, you've recently been to the Commonwealth Games as a volunteer pharmacist. Can you tell us a little bit about your role there and what the experience was like? Yeah, so it was a really fantastic experience. I was working as a pharmacist in the Athletes' Village, which is where the athletes stay, live, eat, recover and train. Um, And I was working with a lot of different health professionals within the clinic there. So we had nurses, doctors, optometrists, dentists, massage therapists, physios, pharmacists, medical imaging. So it was really multidisciplinary. So it was really rewarding in that way. Um, The role was pretty similar to what you would expect in a normal pharmacy, a lot of supply of medications, talking to people about their medicines, giving doctors advice on what they could prescribe. Um, But of course, it had that element of um, needing to check the medications in regards to whether the athlete could have it when they were in competition. Um, As some people might not be aware, there are a lot of medicines that athletes aren't allowed to take or that are restricted in competition. So we did have to check to make sure everything that was prescribed was okay for the athletes. We don't want them getting kicked out after they've won a gold medal or anything like that. That would be terrible. So did you get a chance to watch any of the games yourself? Um, Unfortunately, I didn't get to attend any of the games in person, but the clinic did have a lot of TVs around, so we were always watching the games and seeing what was going on, um, congratulating people on their good sport when they sort of came into the clinic. You'd be like, oh, I just saw you on TV the other day. You did really well. So it was very exciting. And in that way, did you get to meet any of the medalists? Um, I did. Of course, I can't say who they were, but I think my favourite part of the experience was getting to meet those people and... um, talk to them about where they were from, how their games experience was, because it was people from all over the Commonwealth. So in that way, there was a lot of diversity and it was really exciting to meet so many different people and have a chat with them about how they were liking Australia and enjoying the experience of the games. That sounds like a lot of fun. It was. (laughs) (laughs) The games were quite an intense experience for all the athletes involved, but you've recently been with the Deeble Institute looking at a time when health professionals would also be under quite intense pressure, and that's during an influenza pandemic. Can you tell us a bit about what that means and also about the work you've been doing in that space? So I think in the media a lot recently, there's been a lot about our seasonal influenza, which is coming up, a lot of push to get these immunisations done. Um, So pandemic influenza and seasonal influenza are different. Seasonal influenza circulates every year. We have a flu season and our bodies are sort of a little bit, um, they recognise the virus. They're a little bit immune to it. Whereas pandemic influenza happens when the virus shifts um, and changes, it mutates. And so our bodies don't recognise it anymore and it can 
can cause a lot of illness among otherwise healthy people and it can cause a lot of hospital admissions, a lot of build-up in GP clinics um, and have a huge impact on the health sector. So my brief was having a look at how Australian pandemic plans incorporate pharmacists during pandemic events. Um, so pen, in Australia, pandemic outbreaks are the responsibility of state and territory health departments. So each state and territory health department does have a plan. Um, and this plan is critical. It tells us how the health sector is going to act, what roles we're going to expect people to fill and how we're going to manage the pandemic. And that's really critical. If we don't manage the pandemic well, it could get out of hand. We could have more and more people ending up in hospital, more deaths, which could very easily be prevented by good management. Um, so I think there's sort of three main areas that pharmacists need to be aware of and incorporated in, in terms of pandemic planning. We need to know what roles they can fill. We need to know how we com communicate with them. And we need to know that the workforce is going to be there to help out. So from my look at Australia's pandemic plans, the roles of pharmacists aren't well described. Um, and I think that's a real gap because there's a lot of um, roles which in, within their current scope of practice, which they could fill, um, such as vaccination, antiviral distribution, um, supplying emergency medications, um, supplying absence from work certificates, and also surveillance activities to keep an eye on influenza and where it's moving throughout the community. Um, so these roles, like I said, are all within scope currently, but they're not really incorporated into these plans. Um, pandemic plans also do tend to not say how they will communicate with pharmacists. So how do we get to the frontline pharmacists and um, tell them what we want them to do and how they can do that? Um, and they also don't cover workforce um, bolstering. So during a pandemic, as I'm sure you can imagine, we can lose some of our workforce. People can get sick. They can be scared to turn up. It is a really scary time, so it's understandable. Um, so what can we do to make sure that we do have a workforce there? And one of the things that I do discuss in my issues brief is maybe potentially using um, students as a reserve backup for the workforce. They wouldn't be able to fill clinical activities, but they might be able to help out by calling around to other pharmacies, seeing what stock we have, where we have it, maybe making some educational campaigns for the community, things like that. Excellent. So are there any other recommendations that have come out of your brief? Yeah, definitely. So I think the big one is um, clarifying roles of pharmacists. Um, there was a few that I came up with in my meetings with people at the Diebel Institute. Um, but of course, I think that we need a lot of buy-in from other stakeholders. So there could be some other roles that we didn't think of that would be fantastic and very appropriate for pharmacists to fill. So I think that... Um, our state and territory health departments, our pharmacy organisations and our frontline pharmacists have to have a good think about that and see where they want pharmacists to fit in in terms of roles. Do you have any examples around that that you could give us? Yeah, well, I think probably one of the um, big ones is that pharmacists are currently allowed to vaccinate and vaccinating against seasonal influenza is within our current scope of practice. Whether vaccinating against pandemic is within our list of allowed medicines is really unclear. And additionally, we're only allowed to vaccinate within a community pharmacy. 
So if I'm a pharmacist working in a hospital environment or I want to go and help out at a flu clinic that's been set up temporarily, I as a pharmacist am not allowed to do that. So I think that's a role that pharmacists could really play vaccinating outside of a pharmacy, but we're not necessarily allowed to do that. So which leads into the second recommendation, which is considering how legislation and policy might be blocking pharmacists from helping. So that's definitely one thing that we do need to consider as well. In terms of my other recommendations, I think this, like I said, we need a lot of different stakeholders in on this. So we do need to make sure that there's a lot of communication between departments of health, professional pharmacy organisations and our frontline pharmacists to make sure that everyone understands what's going on and that um, everyone knows what's expected of them during this time. Because if we leave it up to when a pandemic is striking to sort of make these connections and make these plans, it's already too late. We need the plan to be in place before it even happens. Otherwise, we're compromising our response. So get in before the pandemic really starts to take off. Yes, definitely, definitely. (laughs) Anything else you'd like to tell us, Libby? So those are probably the main recommendations that came out. And of course, like I said before, with um, making sure that we had adequate workforce there. Um, I think we need to, if we did want to utilise students, we do need to start planning with universities. Um, For anyone who's done a university degree in health, they will know that you do have to do clinical placements usually. So maybe our universities could team up with um, sites where students usually take, undertake clinical placements and say, look, if you need students in a pandemic, we can provide this many. They could do roles such as X, Y, Z. So we do need that communication. And again, pre-planned, if we're waiting until the pandemic strikes, no one's going to have time to talk to one another um, and no one's going to have staff to set this sort of thing up so we need to do it beforehand. So for anyone listening the full brief is available on the AHA website. Libby you spent six weeks with us in Canberra through the scholarship program working on this brief. What were your expectations of the scholarship? To be honest, I didn't really know what to expect. So when I saw the um, scholarship opportunity, it sounded fantastic, but I sort of went into it a bit blindly. I do remember at uni when we were being taught about health policy, it did seem like a very dry topic, but my time at the AHHA and with the Diebel Institute has changed that completely. I really see it as so exciting and so relevant And I think it's a really fantastic area because it can have such broad impacts to um, health and to the Australian population. And that's something that I'm really interested in. Um, So it really changed my opinion of so much stuff to do with health policy. Well, I'm personally pleased you uh, got that experience out of it. Is there anything you learnt that surprised you? Yeah, definitely. So in the immediate term for myself personally, I really learned about how I could use not only my PhD research, but hopefully future research to have larger and long lasting impacts. Um, So in my PhD, I think I've just been recently so focused on just finishing it. I hadn't really thought about how I can use it to implement change. Of course, I wanted to, but I didn't know how I could do that. So this has really taught me how I can do that, how I can turn this into policy, how I can motivate people to um, use it, which is really fantastic. I think it's really added to my PhD and hopefully my future research and career as well. What will you take away from the experience? Well, like I said, the health policy, the understanding of it and its impact on the community was huge. And I think I'm a lot more prepared now to turn any research into more tangible, um, evidence-based policy 
recommendations, which is really useful to know as well. I also had a really fantastic experience working with the people at the AHHA and the Diebel Institute and all the people they were able to introduce me to in policy. So that was really special. I'd never really met the people who run pandemics for Australia. So that like meeting those people and getting some firsthand accounts of what they're up to, what they think should be happening in the space was really fantastic. Um, so that experience was amazing. And I definitely have those contacts now that I can use later in the future as well. And they also taught me um, not only um, connecting me with these people, but they equipped me with the skills for making those connections myself, like gave me advice on how to write an email, how to make first contact. Um, and then when I've made contact with them and I have a nice piece of policy, um, how to engage with media to sort of get that out. So I think that's really, it was really fantastic. So really practical tips on, on how to go about taking research and translating it into for policymakers. Yep, definitely, definitely. Because if you just say one sentence, you just need to translate it in for policymakers. <laughs> that is a really big task because they sort of broke it down and made it very, very easy. Yep. After the Diebel paper was released, I have been approached by several people um, to discuss the work. So this includes individual researchers who have just come up to me and said, this is fantastic, I want to expand on this. Um, I've also had some Australian pharmacy organisations approach me and say, ask me for more information because they want to use the document in some of their own advocacy work with government, which is exactly where I wanted to go with the paper. So that was really fantastic. Um, and also an international pharmacy organisation, so one that spans multiple professions, um, is going to be using that as a key document that they can build upon. So they're wanting to do a similar analysis across multiple countries, uh, which I think makes sense because pandemics don't just affect one country. So they don't just affect Australia, they're going to affect the UK, they're going to affect Canada, they're going to affect the US and all the countries in between. So we do really need that international approach to say, where are pharmacists at the moment? Where's the health system at the moment? And how's that going to impact? So um, they're hopefully going to, they've sort of are going to be using that idea to, and building upon that, which um, I'll hopefully be involved in. It'll be very exciting. So you'd recommend the experience of applying to the Diebel Institute for a scholarship? Oh, definitely. I think as soon as I got back here, all I could do was rant about the experience to people and how amazing it was. So I really couldn't recommend it enough. Um, I was a bit nervous going into it, taking um, six weeks out of my PhD time. It might, it seemed like a lot, but it was just so worth it. And the experience was really unique, something that not a lot of people get. And it's really helped to direct my future research and hopefully my career as well. Libby, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much to Libby for participating in this episode of the Health Advocate podcast. You can access Libby's health policy issues brief via the AHHA website at www.ahha.asn.au. To learn more about the Diebel Institute for Health Policy Research Summer Scholarship Program, visit the Diebel Institute section of the AHHA website. Applications for the 2019 scholarship program open Monday the 1st of October 2018.